Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I am looking forward as we start a new series on the church. I was saying to uh, Eric, it's like a summer of ecclesiology. It's like a summer of the study of the church. I'm so thankful for Eric for the time that he had to lead us through Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and who we are to be as Christ's church. And so we'll continue on in this theme of thinking about the church. And it's dangerous, while I'm thankful for the five weeks that Eric preached, it's dangerous because it gave me five weeks to think about this sermon. (laughs) We'll see if you're still doing that at the end. (laughs) But it's good to be back. It's good to be back. So are you ready? Would you stand for the reading of God's word? I'm going to read Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Once I finish verse 20, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say thanks be to God, because we are thankful for his holy word to us. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on, <clears throat> excuse me, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Things that captivate our minds. Things that grip our hearts. Things that bind our souls to you, the living God. Oh, let us not ignore your word to us, but let us receive it with joy and gladness and good hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the theological story and film recently produced, entitled Finding Nemo, We are given an astute observation of human nature. In this underwater tale of a father clownfish desperately trying to find his lost son, we are introduced to many characters from the sea life and animal world, and we go from character to character. We find that each character is provided with an elaborate vocabulary they use throughout the film. That is, they all have an elaborate vocabulary, save one particular animal. This animal 
only is able to say one word. And with only a one-word vocabulary, we, the viewer, draw the conclusion that this animal must not be very smart. They are portrayed as imbecilic, if not downright stupid. And if you've ever spent any time around this animal, you might have the same reaction. While all of God's creatures are magnificent and amazing, I admit that I have found myself muttering in my time spent with this animal, stupid seagulls. These are the same animals that have that one-word vocabulary in Finding Nemo, and the one word they can say, the only word they can say is, mine. That is one of the first words many of us learn to say. Spend much time with a toddler who is learning to speak, and you might hear them say, mine. We quickly learn in our lives those things that we possess, that are ours, and the things that we want to possess, and we use the same word in those circumstances, mine. And if someone takes what is ours or what we believe to be ours, we say, hey, that's mine. And what we learn from finding Nemo is that the only thing more annoying than one seagull saying mine over and over again is a whole flock of seagulls saying mine over and over and over again. But for us, we would like to think we've gotten over the toddler stage of going around saying mine when really we've only gotten more sophisticated in concealing how we say mine. So the purpose of this sermon is straightforward and very simple. I want to kill the seagull in each of us. And specifically, I want to kill the seagull in us as it relates to Christ's church, where we are tempted to look at the church and say, mine. In Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, are given, we are given a fundamentally necessary course correction for how we view the church, think about the church, or understand the church. In fact, this is the first time the word church is used in the New Testament. Wouldn't we think then, the first thing we read about the church in the New Testament is foundational, it's important. It is a necessary truth upon which all other truths are built, upon which all other truths find their stability. Christ lays the bedrock of our understanding of the church in Matthew 16. If we have the ears that are willing to hear over the chaotic chorus of the voices yelling out, mine. This is a big text with many intricacies, and it can lead to some very big questions. Up front this morning, I am not going to deal with every question today because I want to concentrate on verse 18, but to catch us up to speed, just on where we are in Matthew. Jesus has just warned about the Pharisees and Sadducees, those who would demand signs in order to believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, no sign is going to be given to them except the sign of Jonah. Remember Jonah swallowed by the great fish in the belly of that fish three days and three nights before he was vomited back onto dry land, just as Jesus would be buried for three days and then resurrect to new life. Jesus also warned the disciples of the Pharisees and Sadducees teaching. He says it's like this leaven that Leaven that infiltrates a whole lump of dough and bread. And he says, be careful what you eat. Be careful what you take in from these Pharisees and Sadducees because it's going to infect you and it's not going to be good. And now he comes with his disciples to this district of Caesarea Philippi. 
a place which was a hotbed for paganism, worshiping Caesar, worshiping this pagan god known as Pan. And Jesus asks his disciples some important questions. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus is referring to himself here as the Son of Man. It's a title from the Old Testament in Daniel 7 where the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him, that it should serve the Son of Man. His dominion is promised to be an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. So Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And everybody has an opinion. Just like today, everybody has an opinion about who Jesus is. In fact, you have to do something with Jesus. You can't just ignore him. You have to do something with him, just like the people in Jesus' day. They had to do something about Jesus. They couldn't just ignore him. So some said he was John the Baptist, John the Baptist who was beheaded by Herod because John the Baptist was saying, Herod, guess what? It's not good for you to have your brother's wife. Maybe it's John the Baptist come back to life. Maybe it's the great prophet Elijah, the prophet Elijah who was going to come at the end of days. Maybe he was one like Jeremiah or the prophets of the Old Testament who were calling people to repent and promising God's restoring grace. The disciples knew all of the opinions. They knew all of the hearsay about Jesus, the scuttlebutt about Jesus. But then Jesus gets very poignant and says, but who do you say that I am? That's a question that everyone must answer very personally, but who do you say Jesus Christ is? Is he just a good teacher? Is he just a healer? Is he just a really moral person? And it's an answer that you cannot afford to get wrong because your eternal destiny depends upon who you know Christ to be. There is no past. There is no getting around it. You can't have someone else answer the question for you. Ah, my dad, let him answer the question. My mom, she's really godly. She'll answer the question for me. No, 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 no. You have to answer it for yourself. It is the question above all other questions because it is a question about belief. It's a question of faith. It's not a question merely of knowledge. It's not a question concerning your intellect. It's not a question that you can even necessarily study so you get the right answer. But Peter gets it right. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter answers with a confession of truthfulness and a confession of praise. Do you hear the praise in what Peter says? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. That is, you are the son of David. You are the righteous branch. You are the one that we have been waiting for. The spirit-anointed one of God. And then comes a further explanation. The son of the living God. This question of Jesus being the son of God comes up again and again in Matthew's gospel. First, it's Satan tempting Jesus and Satan coming to Jesus and saying, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, the next time we hear this word Son of God used, it's with demons that Jesus is casting out of two men and they say, we know who you are, Son of God. Seeking to have authority or power over Jesus by using this title, for him. So, so far, think about that. In Matthew, the first times that this title, Son of God, is used, it's all about questioning. Jesus, are you really the Son of God? Prove it. It's coming from adversaries. It's coming from Satan and demons. But then the next time, Jesus walks on water. And after he finally steps into the boat, it says that 
his disciples worshipped him and said, truly you are the Son of God. Then you have this confession of Peter, you are the Son of the living God. It is true, you are the Son of God. And what he is saying is, you are divine, you are God. Not in the sense of you are just related to God, you are God in the flesh. You are the embodiment of God. But then, in the book of Matthew, we go back to questioning if he is the Son of God. First in his trial, then people are mocking him on the cross. But then we get to a Roman centurion being filled with awe in Matthew 27, who says, truly this was the Son of God. Peter confesses in complete faith and specifically that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The living God as set apart and completely different from the dead idols worshipped by the people. It is the living God we worship because only the living God gives life. To worship dead, lifeless idols is to become like them, dead and lifeless, without God and without hope in this world. But then Jesus commends Peter for his confession and then makes this statement I want us to unpack this morning. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So number one this morning, if you have your bulletin, you find it helpful to use that, you can use that. Number one this morning, Christ, church, is built by Him. Christ, church, is built by Him. And I want to begin just by looking at that little phrase, I will build my church. I know this is connected to other truths, but let us make sure we first get this right. And before we get to Christ's action of what he promises to do, we have to let two little words saturate our minds because Jesus says, my church. It's Christ's church. It is his possession. He owns it. It is his. The church is no one else's. First and fundamentally, it is Christ's church. Who does the church belong to? It belongs to Christ, the Son of the living God. It belongs to the Son of Man, whose dominion is everlasting and whose kingdom cannot be destroyed. But what is fascinating is that Jesus says, my church, and again, this is the first time this word church is used in the New Testament. In fact, if you were to look in the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word church is only used three times. Once here in Matthew 16 and twice in Matthew 18. And what I find fascinating is that Jesus says, my church, and the disciples accept it. They don't say, church? What is this church that you are talking about? We've never heard of anything like this before. Jesus gives no explanation of what the church is at this point, which makes us think the disciples already have an idea of what church is. The question is, where did they get this idea from? They get it from the Old Testament. They get it from something called particularly the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And there it often uses this Greek word, so we're going to get technical here for a moment, don't get scared, this word ecclesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, ecclesia. And it's often used in the Old, Old Testament translation to refer to the gathering or the assembling of people generally, but even more specifically, it's often used of the assembly or the gathering of God's people, of Yahweh's people. Okay, now I'm going to give you a warning, let's be quick, warning of an exegetical fallacy. So sometimes when people look at this word, ecclesia, they split it into two and they say it's a compound word, 
Klesia, which is from this word kaleo, means I call, and ek, which means out of. And so they say, look, the church is the called out ones, right? We are the called out ones. That's an exegetical fallacy. Just like we wouldn't say, oh, this compound word butterfly means fly and butter. So it must be a fly made out of butter. No, we wouldn't do that. It's a butterfly, something different. So when this word ecclesia is used, it's talking about a gathering. It's an assembly of people together. Now, with that warning, it is true. The Bible says we are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are, in a sense, called out ones. But I don't think we can use this word as the basis for saying that we're called out ones. Does that make sense? So what is it that the disciples were hearing? They were hearing that there was going to be a gathering of people, an assembly of people, and like it happened in the Old Testament, when people gathered, they gathered as the people of Yahweh. So now, people were going to gather together, and in line with this, they were going to gather as the people of the Messiah, as the people of Jesus. And this is directly in line with what the Jews were expecting. A Messiah without a messianic community would have been unthinkable to any Jew. So the people of Yahweh become the people of the Messiah with Jesus saying, my church. He is declaring with supreme and utmost authority, he is the church's Lord. And he has transformed these people to be his people. So this is his church. Now let us turn to the action the Lord promises to take towards his church when he says, I will build my church. It is the action of Jesus Christ to actively build his church. The question we are left with is what does it mean for Jesus to build? Does Jesus building the church mean the local church will grow numerically? That is, more people, a multiplication of people. Does Jesus building his church mean that he will grow it spiritually? People will grow in holiness, godliness, discernment, and spiritual maturity. We see both of these happening in the New Testament. People added to their number in the book of Acts. Many of Paul's epistles, we see the promise of the sanctification among believers. Yet we do not see any specifics for those ideas here does not mean that they are necessarily excluded. They are just not mentioned explicitly. I think one conclusion we can draw from this promise is that with Christ's promise to build His church, it means that the church will accomplish what God has planned and purposed for the church. In other words, the church will succeed in the plan and purpose for which it was designed as Christ builds his church. It will do precisely what Christ intends it to do. So Christ building his church means the church will obey Christ. Christ building his church means the church will live for Christ. Christ building his church means the church will organize according to Christ's commands. Christ building his church means that it will succeed as he intends it to succeed. Not as the world counts success, not as the world describes what, at, what is impressive or meaningful, but it will succeed in its life and in its testimony as he has so ordained for it to do according to his purpose and plan. Remember what Eric read in Jeremiah 31, 3, when God, or when God says, again, I will build my people. It's the same word that Jesus is using here in Matthew 16 when he says, I will build my church. And so, Yahweh building his people, but now it's Christ building his people and restoring his people. And so, as Jesus says, I will build my church, 
There is a promise in here that Jesus is going to restore his people. Jesus is going to be rescuing his people. Jesus is going to be renewing his people through his building. And as we look at the Old Testament, we would find that the Lord often is promising to build his people. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, what? Labor in vain. And so when Jesus says, I will build my church, part of this purpose and plan is rescuing and restoring and renewing his people for his glory. Let us take a moment and just think what Jesus does not say in this verse. He does not say, you will build your church. To say this would mean the church is ours and it is all dependent upon us to make the church what it should be and what it needs to be. That is a burden that's too heavy for us to bear. It's not our church and our workmanship is shoddy, weak, and ultimately it doesn't last. Christ also does not say, you will build my church. To say this would mean even though the church is his possession, we need to do him a favor to build his church. Let me help you out, Jesus, and build your church for you. Jesus, you're not up to date, really, on people in this postmodern era. You don't really know what they want or what they need or what's really important to them. Give us the reins to your church, and we will build, and you can watch our new techniques and tactics that are needed in the world today. Christ also does not say, I will build your church, as if we've owned the church and we've hired out Jesus as a contractor to do the building work while we direct him to build the way we want him to build our church. And yet, how often do we functionally take these kind of mentalities upon ourselves and either try to claim the church as our own, build the church how we think it should be built, or diminish Christ's authority by instructing him on how he should build the church? How easy it is for us to look at the church, especially the local church, fold our arms and say, I don't like the way that Jesus is building the church. It's not how I would have done it. Does it make sense to me? Does it look like Jesus is building his church? Jesus, maybe you're not building your church because it doesn't look the way, that, the way that I want it to look, the way that I think it should look. Let us, in that moment, hear the words the Lord spoke to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I made the world. I made everything. You're going to tell me on how I should build my church? Who are you? You're nothing. This is not yours. It's mine. I will build my church how I'm going to build my church. You don't know how to build. I know how to build. I'm the master builder, says Jesus. Christ built the cosmos, but you can't trust him to build his church? He died to build his church. He shed his blood to build his church. What have you given? You've given a tiny little bit. You shed your blood for the church? You've stopped breathing for the church? You've given it all for the church? You've experienced the wrath and judgment of God for the church? Jesus Christ loves his church and he died for it. 
The church must be built by Christ because that is when it will possess an otherworldliness to it. Do you know that word, otherworldliness? You might know the word, word, word worldliness, right? People like the world, but there is a otherworldliness to the church. There is a heavenly, eternal dimension to the church. And guess what? The church only gets that otherworldliness when Jesus is building his church. If there is no otherworldliness in this church, it's because we are trying to build the church, not Christ. Number two. Christ built his church on the apostles. Christ's church is built on his apostles. Where was Jesus to build his church? He was to build it on Peter. Peter had made the true confession. And I love this. The confession did not come from within him, but it was an external revelation. Jesus says, My Father who is in heaven revealed this truth to you, Peter. Peter didn't see Jesus like working around, doing things, healing people. And, 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 and Peter was like, hmm, I'm going to take this piece of this miracle. I'm going to take this piece of this miracle. I'm going to take this teaching and this teaching. And I'm going to kind of put them all together and voila, you're the Messiah. It doesn't happen that way. Otherwise, Jesus would have said it. He would have said, wow, Peter, you're really smart. You figured it out. You took all of these pieces and you put the puzzle together. Peter didn't even know there was a puzzle. No, this was a supernatural, divine revelation from God the Father to Peter so that Peter understood who Jesus was. That's it. That's the way it always happens. It was an intervention by God himself in Peter's life that made it possible for Peter to make his confession. And then Jesus calls Simon Barjona Peter, which means stone or rock, and says, on this rock, on you, Peter, I will build my church. And it is unfortunate that we as Protestants have been scared by this verse. The plain, straightforward understanding is that Peter is the rock on which Christ will build his church. The Roman Catholics have twisted it to uphold a doctrine that isn't taught in the text. This text says nothing of the perpetual office of Peter that has passed down through the centuries as the bishop of Rome. This text says nothing of Peter's infallibility. In fact, a few verses later, he's likened to a stumbling stone and is rebuked by Jesus. Not to mention he denied Jesus three times before the cross. And what Jesus says here correlates to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and the members of the household of God, listen, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We are those who are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Peter serves as a representative for the apostles. So his confession is the confession of the apostles. It is still the confession we hold to, a confession to be believed, a confession held by faith, a confession because of the divine revelation from God about the supreme identity of Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And it is the apostles who are initially entrusted with the gospel. It is the apostles who are the eyewitnesses to the risen Lord. And while we acknowledge that Christ's church will be built on Peter and the apostles, there is no doubt about the focus of the church. It is still clearly on Christ. He is the cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, and everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Think about what grace, what grace our Lord lavishes here upon Peter and his apostles. Jesus could have said, I'm the rock, and on this church, and on this rock, me, I will build my church. But think of the grace that Jesus says, You are Peter, and Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. 
we know that Peter's going to go through some rough times. We know that Peter is not perfect. We know that Peter has a foot-shaped mouth. But what grace that Jesus says, you are Peter. God has revealed something to you special and necessary. God has given you his saving grace. And I'm going to give you that grace and you will be one upon what grace what grace that God uses these apostles who were used by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to communicate God's divine truth and revelation of himself so that we have everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness number three Christ's church cannot be destroyed Christ's church cannot be destroyed Remember what I said about what it means for Christ to build his church? If you forgot, I'll remind you. Christ building his church means the church is accomplishing the purpose and plan of God in this world. And I think the last part of verse 18 is evidence of this. What does it look like when Christ is building his church? How do you know Christ is building his church. Here is the explanation of that. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I've changed my interpretation on this part of the verse. I used to say this means the church is on the offense and that we are bursting through the gates of hell as we proclaim the gospel. The problem with that is that we often think of hell as the dominion of Satan and his demons. So we get fired up. We are waging war against the strongholds of the devil. We are mounting an attack against demonic forces. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. You can read about this explicitly in Ephesians 6. I think that it is true that we are waging war against Satan and the demonic realm, that there is a spiritual warfare going on, but I don't think that's what Jesus means when he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. First, we need to understand the word hell. It's a different word that's used elsewhere in Matthew. When you read through Matthew, Jesus often uses the Greek word Gehenna, translated as hell, and it's associated with fire and torment and judgment of those who reject Jesus Christ. The word here, however, is not Gehenna, it's Hadu, a form of the more familiar word Hades. It's not like hell that we think of as a place of eternal judgment or torment. Rather, it is the place of the dead. So what is Jesus saying when he says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church? He's saying this. Though the church will experience persecution, tribulation, and martyrdom for the cause of Christ and his gospel, those who belong to the messianic community, that is the church, will not be imprisoned by the gates of death. Since the church is the assembly of the people of Jesus the Messiah, it is a building that cannot die. It is linked, bound to, united with the risen Christ. And therefore, as the risen Christ has defeated death and is the victor over death, so all his saints will be victorious over death as well. This is the most astounding, most amazing, most wonderful thing imaginable. Oh, how for many of us, we might fear death my brothers and sisters, if we are honest, we fear death. How we wish to live a long life, only one day to drift off to heaven in our sleep. Oh, how many of us would wring our hands at the thought of premature death. I have the hopes of marriage in the future, 
I have the hope of kids. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to see them get married. I want to see my grandkids. I want to live to a ripe old age and experience everything there is to experience in the life I have to live. Lord, Lord, please don't take my life prematurely. Take other things from me. Take some of my money. Take some of my possessions. Take some of my health. I will offer you anything but my life. But what does Jesus say? When I build my church and when you are accomplishing the plan, you will face death simply because you are a Christian, simply because you hold on to Christ, simply because you proclaim the gospel, simply because you live the radical life I have called you to. And you can face death because the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Death cannot keep you dead. There is resurrection life where we will be raised to have a glorious body. What assurance do I have that the gates of Hades will not prevail against us? Because we look to the one who says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of what? Of death and Hades. Jesus holds those keys. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. I will not fear death. What can man do to me? Kill me? So what? I will not be imprisoned by the gates of hell. This promise demonstrates the church is not idle or static. The church does not, will not, and cannot remain in one place. It's on the move. It's moving out. It's expanding. The testimony of Jesus is going out of the church and we will conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony as those who have loved their lives not even to death. What kind of church is that who would say, I know that Christ is going to build this church and guess what? I might die. And that's what I want. This is not a promise for us to sit and lick our wounds and feel sorry for ourselves and tell ourselves how bad we have it and how difficult things are and why nobody likes us and everybody hates us and throw a pity party, but we can trust that the Lord will take care of us. This is a promise for us to move out in the power and the proclamation of the gospel to live lives for Jesus and tell others about Jesus. It is for us to face persecution, tribulation, and death. It is for us to risk it all because of the cause of Christ and trust then that he will take care of us. So application quickly, application quickly. So specific things as we say, Lord, we want you to build your church, what does this look like in our lives? Repent of the pride of thinking this is your church. Repent of the pride of thinking this is your church. Isn't it prideful for us to think this is my church? No, it's not. It's Christ's church. And if you're thinking this is your church, we all need to repent. That's where all good application starts with repentance. Number two, relinquish the pseudo-control of pretending this is your church. Relinquish the pseudo-control. That's fake control. That's control that you think you have, but you don't really have any control. Relinquish the pseudo-control you think you have of pretending this is your church. Say, Lord, I think I have some control pretending this is your church, but I don't want any of that. I relinquish it completely. Give it to you. I don't want it. Number three, reorient your vocabulary away from saying this is your church. Reorient your vocabulary away from saying this is your church. And some of us might say, what's the big deal about this? I think it's helpful for us to say 
what we mean. Like we say, Grace Bible Fellowship, that's my church. You drive by on Shooting Park Road, you say, Grace Bible Fellowship, that's my church. Stop it. Find ways to say this is Christ's church. This is where God has called me. This is where I worship Christ. But it's his church, and he is building his church. Say what you mean. So stop saying it's your church. Four, reemphasize Christ's headship over his church. Reemphasize Christ's headship over the church, over his church. He is the head. He is everything. He is the master builder of his church. We need to reemphasize that. He is the senior pastor. Something's going on in the church you don't like, take it to Jesus first. Number five, recommit to praying for Christ to fulfill his promise. This is a promise he's given us. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Commit yourself to praying according to that promise because the Lord answers prayers according to what he has promised. You wonder why Christ isn't building his church, maybe? Well, have you been praying for it? God accomplishes his sovereign purpose through the prayers of his saints that are in line with his revealed sovereign will. So pray for Christ to fulfill his promise. Last one. Sixth application. Rejoice in the work Jesus is doing and will do. This verse, let me say it again. Rejoice in the work Jesus is doing and will do. This verse should bring a smile to your face. Jesus is saying he will build his church. Rejoice. How great is that? Let joy flow out of your life. Why are you joyful? Because Christ is building this church. Guess what? I have no idea what he's doing, but I know he's building this church. I'm glad for that. I rejoice in that. Oh, I'm content in that. What do we need? We do not need a cacophony of chaotic voices frantically shrieking mine when it comes to the church. Instead, we need the almighty, sovereign, commanding voice of Jesus Christ declaring over the church in beautiful, symphonic, and resolved tones, mine, so that our mouths might be stopped our hearts might be refocused, our affections might rightly be reordered, and our lives might be re-energized for complete obedience, and so our eternal joy might be complete because the church is Christ's church. Let's pray. Oh God, speak to us this morning through your word. Renew us through your word. Remind us this is Christ's church. And that when Christ builds his church, It means we might die because of our testimony, because of our commitment to Him. It means we might be persecuted. It means we might face tribulation and difficulty and hardships simply because we name the name of Christ. But there is great hope. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. 
the gates of hell will not hold us in. We will live with Jesus forever and ever. So Lord, if it means taking our life, if it means martyrdom, if it means tribulation and persecution, so be it, for Christ is building His church. And Father, help us because as Martin Luther even reminds us, where Christ builds His church, Satan will build the chapel. There might be things that would try to take our worship away from You. There might be things distract us. There might be things that confuse us. There might be things that would want to get in the way of Christ building His church. But Lord, Renew our minds and hearts today. If there's anything that would be seeking to take our eyes off of Christ, anything that would want, be wanting to remove our worship of Christ, may we give that to you today and say, we don't want this anymore. We don't, we don't want to worship at Satan's chapel. We don't want to be a synagogue of Satan. We want to be people of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We want to be that restored community. We want to be that taste and glimpse of heaven. So, Lord, make us that, I pray. Please, please, Jesus, Build your church. Let's hear this good word from Romans 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace.